Welcome to episode 156 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today for our interview by uh, uh, Michael Daniel, who was the, uh, uh, he will hate to hear me say the cyber czar, but for those of you who remember the day was when we were going to have a cyber czar, um, it actually became a special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator at the White House. Uh, I, and uh, Michael Daniel got the job. Uh, I and uh, uh, left at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, he's now the president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, and we'll ask him about that as well. It's a group of cybersecurity companies that work together to share information about threats, and uh, I, it, it'll be a good interview. But first, our roundup uh, uh, with Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. And Stephanie Roy, a partner in our telecom, internet, and media practice, uh, uh, who principally practices before the FCC and is our go-to source on all things telecommunications. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to step out of practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, WikiLeaks is uh, in the news again, uh, but... Only briefly, they had a second tranche uh, of their uh, disclosures, and it uh, it was what the Brits would call a damp squib. Uh, um, it was almost all Apple stuff, and Apple released a study saying, yeah, we... Um, we patched some of that in 2009 at the beginning of the Obama administration, some of it in 2013, uh, and we think we're good and we don't think we need to spend a lot of time uh, uh, doing deals with WikiLeaks to see this stuff. Uh, so uh, looks like a pretty dull release. Most of the uh, uh, attacks required physical access to the machine, which again is... Uh, consistent with the idea that this might be a CIA leak, but uh, also something that most people worry about a lot less than remote hacking. So uh, WikiLeaks, um, uh, its uh, 15 seconds of fame expired, apparently. Uh, um, the Third Circuit, to, to go back to some actual law, the Third Circuit has now ruled on the question whether uh, you can conveniently forget your uh, password uh, when the government uh, wants to prosecute you for what's on your computer. Uh, uh, Michael, what did the Third Circuit say, and how important is this? Uh, not very important. Uh, I'll answer your second question first, because um, this was on a uh, review of a contempt ruling where the uh, standard review is very deferential to the, to the district court. Uh, and there was uh, apparently ample evidence presented by the prosecution that the defendant, in fact, was lying when he said he couldn't remember his password um, and offered no evidence to rebut that, that the prosecution's evidence. Um, so I'm not sure it really amounts to uh, much of an important precedent. Uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it suggests, though, that there's a path for basically forcing people to do this uh, because... The evidence that he uh, knew the password was he used to know the password. Uh, and uh, his sister said, yes, I saw him uh, uh, access that. Uh, um, and 
that plus the fact that he did not say when they asked him for his password the first time, uh, I don't remember, he said, uh, I don't want you to look at that. Um, those are those are the two things. That plus the fact that he had the burden of proof means uh, uh, that he is now in contempt uh, and can be held in contempt for failing to produce it. Uh, I'm guessing that Probably right. Well, can, I, can I hold you up right there? Yeah. Um, because you, you skipped over something that's pretty critical, which is that he's got the burden of production and he failed to produce any evidence. End of story. Yeah. So again, I don't see how this really amounts to you know a major uh, presidential ruling. The guy didn't produce any evidence. He also failed to appeal the initial uh, order um, quashing his or denying his motion to quash. Uh, and then um, appealed only the contempt ruling. So again, you know, bad lawyering on his part or, or poor tactics uh, largely resulted in this ruling because it, it, it meant that the court of appeals was going to um, apply a very deferential standard of review. So I, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you up to a point, but it seems to me that for the future, uh, any smart. Uh, uh, set of police officers is going to be able to build a record that said he didn't tell me he couldn't remember uh, and uh, uh, that plus any evidence that, that these he had accessed these which I think you could probably infer from a variety of you know from carrying it around and the like uh, um, creates a presumption that it's going to be hard to rebut I don't know how you produce evidence that you forgot something it's just, you know, you kind of say uh, what this means to me is uh, people who think they can for conveniently forget their uh, passwords when asked to produce them are going to lose. Is there other evidence? Uh, is, is there other precedent? So, apologize, I haven't been following this, that uh, a defendant can be forced to uh, convey a password, that that's not self-incrimination? Yeah, there, there, you have to get... Um, passed the self-incrimination uh, standard, and they did here by saying, look, what's what you'd be showing by providing the password is that this is really your stuff. Uh, and we already had evidence, lots of evidence, that this was really your stuff. So it was a foregone conclusion, and you're not really helping the government. Is, is that right, uh, Michael? Yeah, to me, that's the interesting issue here, because the whole foregone conclusion doctrine is just... Uh, a bizarre element of a, a whole bizarre jurisprudence about Fifth Amendment um, privilege against self-incrimination. Uh, and so there was some discussion of that, but um, it, it's nothing new there. Yeah, and, and uh, again, there's a roadmap now on foregone conclusion that uh, I think the uh, police will be able to follow to avoid the Fifth Amendment issue. So my guess is, that, you know, the... the the crypto enthusiasts who believe that they can keep the police out of this by just uh, uh, protecting it and then forgetting the password are mostly going to lose, especially if what they're protecting, like this guy, was hundreds of um, items of child pornography. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I would have no problem presenting evidence of forgetting my passwords. <laughs> forgetting my passwords all the time. I would. I, I would get testimony from my logins. I could have testimony from my friends and relatives about uh, my forgetfulness. It would really not be that hard to do. 
you know, I, I, and especially the, under the stress of potential criminal prosecution. So, well, maybe that's right. Maybe that's <laughs> it. You know, I, I certainly could get my wife to say, uh, yeah, and he doesn't shut the freezer door either. Uh, uh, so, uh, so maybe, maybe it's just a failure of, of uh, proof on the part of his lawyer. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, so. Congress is actually doing something, even though it's not uh, passing health care. The Senate has voted, pretty narrow margin, but it voted to repeal uh, the FCC's ISP privacy rules uh, for uh, uh, under the uh, uh, Congressional Review Act, and this is potentially a pretty big deal, isn't it, Stephanie? It is because. if, in fact, the House takes it up, which uh, the House is expected to take it up and the president signs it, that means the FCC is precluded from enforcing these rules or any, quote, similar rules um, absent further action by Congress. And these rules were designed to implement Section 222 of the Communications Act um, for ISPs, and uh, they set guidelines by which the ISPs had to obtain opt-in consent from users to share certain information that ISPs are able to capture from the users, such as browsing history, uh, opt-out consent uh, under certain less sensitive data, and also requirements that the ISP have reasonable cybersecurity measures in place and uh, had certain obligations with respect to uh, data breach disclosure. and uh, in the event that the, the, the congressional um, the resolution passes the House and then signed by that by the president, we'll have nothing in place actually for ISPs because if you recall, last fall we discussed on this podcast a decision by the Ninth Circuit that says that the FTC has no jurisdiction over common carriers. And, so, and, the, and the reason they are common carriers is because the, the, the reclassification the wanted to impose uh, net neutrality. So, isn't the administration likely to undo net neutrality too? Yeah, but the, but that takes time. Actually, unlike the privacy rules, which uh, were only fi- uh, uh, finalized and beca- uh, the clock started on them in December. Actually, uh, the the reclassification of internet access providers as common carriers under Title II of the Communications Act uh, was happened uh, well over a year ago. So they're not subject to the Congressional Review Act. So, in, as you recall, the FCC is an independent agency, right. um, and. To undo something that they've done by rulemaking, they need to have well, another rulemaking. rulemaking. That's like two years. That's at least another year because they're obligated under the Administrative Procedures Act to gather public input and to address that public input. So we have this no man's period where the uh, actions by ISPs on the privacy front are regulated neither by the FCC nor by the FTC. So uh, the thing that bothers me is the cybersecurity stuff because I think that uh, any additional regulatory authority over cybersecurity probably a good idea, uh, especially something as uh, generic as this. Well, uh, then I can count on you uh, lobbying the administration there, Stuart. Well, well, no? <laughs> so uh, that's a real question whether uh, you know I, I suspect um, a veto is not in the cards, notwithstanding the uh, the, the cybersecurity. Uh, uh, issue, uh, but that's the one thing that uh, I could imagine uh, the administration starting to get worried about, given that cybersecurity is such a big deal for uh, uh, for this administration. 
Well, I, I, I understand that some um, interests have tried to get some attention on this issue uh, from the administration uh, and also just – it seems like a pretty populist idea, actually, that somebody shouldn't be tracking your every move and profiting. Oh, the I, the, the, the entire Democratic platform sounds you pretty know, populist, populist to pretty you. Populist. Uh, <laughs> um, well, but uh, so but, you know, I understand there hasn't been much success. Yeah. So we do expect it to be signed. Um, uh, obviously, uh there are reasons that our some of our clients even believe that shouldn't be signed, and then and then a lot of people think that there should be some gatekeeper over the behavior of um, these companies with significant access into our personal lives. Have but doesn't look so. Like the it. other possibility is they'll get rid of um, net neutrality legislatively, and if they did, yes. they could they could. Um, well, they would automatically restore FTC jurisdiction, wouldn't they? Yeah, if they, it's not getting rid of net neutrality, as you thought. You, you need to get rid, rid of the common, common carrier, carrier classification. Uh, yes. Right. So if they, uh, if they undo the common carrier classification, that would restore it actually to the FTC. Um, but, you know, interestingly oh, I enough, these same I, I look ISPs. You jumping right I know, the, these on, same <laughs> ISPs argue that, um, that vague standards was poor, um, uh, was a poor substitute for certain rules when it comes to the reasonable con- com- reasonable conduct standard under the net neutrality rules. So, and as we know, the FTC rules are they're no fan of the FTC um, uh, regulating their space. AT and T resisted the FTC case against it vociferously last fall and over the years prior to that. Well, understandably, they didn't <laughs> they they they, uh, they didn't want two regulators. Uh, okay, um, the. Um uh, the other piece of news which came out over the weekend that I thought was significant uh, uh, was that, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley privacy enthusiasts who think that uh, uh, they're getting a signal of consent from Europe as they fight with the FBI over uh, uh, access to data are really in for a big surprise, which is being delivered, you know, now. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Home Secretary uh, 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 said that the guy who did the attack uh, on uh, uh, the UK Parliament and on the bridge to the Parliament uh, um, had sent a WhatsApp message just before he launched the attack, and uh, uh, that WhatsApp has said, "Well, it's end to end encrypted." I don't know. Uh, and uh, 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 Rudd said about that that. Uh, WhatsApp uh, encryption is utterly uh, or completely unacceptable uh, to deny the government access when it really needs it, like in a terrorism case. Uh, this is this is now puts the UK and the, uh, in line with the Germans and the French uh, and probably most of Europe in being happy to beat up American technology companies that uh, have made their stuff. Uh, uh, wiretap uh, uh, proof, uh, and my guess is we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, the uh, uh, there's just no penalty for the uh, uh, Brits uh, uh, or the rest of Europe in beating up uh, Facebook or WhatsApp uh, or Google um, over their policies of not cooperating with law enforcement or building uh, end-to-end encryption that is the is proof against their access as well as law enforcement access. So I don't know, Michael. Uh, this is uh, this is 
going to be a long fight, and it looks to me as though the FBI increasingly is going to draft behind Europe. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be a bad strategy. Um, uh, but then again, you know, candidate Donald Trump uh, was uh, outspoken in criticizing Apple during the whole fight over access to the uh, encrypted iPhone. Uh, but surprisingly, we haven't heard um, anything uh, recently out of the administration, at least that I know of, uh, on this issue. Maybe they're they're suddenly more. Um, I'm 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 looking forward to the, privacy. I'm looking forward to that Oval Office meeting where Jim Comey comes in and says, uh, "So, President Trump, I need a favor." <laughs> uh, I'm guessing that that's part of the problem. Is that uh, uh, is not I the think, best position uh, the, to do. the other the other side of it is I think the president and his minions are probably a lot more concerned about protecting the privacy of communications that the FBI wants access I, to. I guess that's right. Once 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 it's clear that WhatsApp is end to end encrypted, maybe it'll become a White House standard. Um, all right. Um, it, quick issues. Uh, um, uh, Rick Leggett from NSA, career guy, leaving soon and, and starting to sound like it, uh, uh, was asked uh, uh, to comment on the suggestion that I think the president uh, endorsed that uh, GCHQ, uh, the um, British NSA, might have done spying on Americans for NSA, and he said that's ridiculous, uh, uh, words to that effect. Uh, uh, Michael, no surprise there, is there? I think he said it was errant nonsense uh, or something to, to that effect. Um, yeah, no, no surprise there at all. The only, the only somewhat surprising thing was that uh, Legend would say this on the record, and I think that's because, as you noted, he is on his way out, so he feels free to say that sort of thing, because otherwise his head would be on the chopping block. Yeah, I was in a meeting with him, an uh, uh, Aspen uh, um, Society meeting, and uh, uh, he made some other news that we'll talk about, uh, essentially calling the uh, uh, the North Koreans bank robbers uh, without naming them, but it was perfectly obvious who he was talking about. Uh, um, uh, so I, I'll get to that. Just uh, two other things. Uh, Tom Bossert, uh, um, it, who is the Homeland Security Advisor in this administration uh, and somebody who you know was a Deputy uh, Homeland Security Advisor in the last in the Bush administration, um, has said that Section 702 should be clean reauthorized. This is the uh, uh, authorization to conduct surveillance on one end, in the, one end in the United States foreign communications. Uh, not a surprise exactly, but uh, a confirmation that this administration is going to try to get 702 through without making changes, which is probably what the Obama administration would have said, although I'm guessing they would have signaled uh, more flexibility about a few, uh, a little bit of tinkering around the edges. Uh, I'll ask uh, uh, Michael Daniel about that when we get to him. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Michael, any surprises in that? Uh, no, not not to me. Yeah. And uh, uh, laptops can't fly uh, from the Middle East. Uh, a lot of that. Uh, that was. Uh, a little surprising to me, but uh, I, I think we're going to uh, see uh, um, uh, restrictions on uh, electronic devices for quite a while. Uh, uh, the UK has now bought into the same set of restrictions that uh, the US had. Uh, certain certain carriers, certain airlines, certain uh, uh, airports. Well. Uh, last topic that I wanted to cover, and I'm going to use this to kind of 
pivot to our um, interview with Michael Daniel is the story that uh, Rick Ledgett kicked off for us, which is that uh, North Korea is increasingly seen as uh, the most sophisticated bank robber in town. Uh, they've been flagged for having uh, uh, done uh, uh, some of the attacks on SWIFT members, uh, uh, for having attacked South Korean banks. Uh, the uh, uh, the tools and tactics that they're using uh, in those attacks make it highly likely that they're the source of both of those attacks. Uh, and that's starting to worry a lot of members of the financial industry. Um, uh, Michael, did you follow this story? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me um, that this is where the North Koreans have, have focused. And the thing that jumped into my uh, head, uh, and maybe this is, this is because um, this is when I was back from when I was in government, was in North Korea, you know, they were the ones behind the super notes uh, for, for yeah. years and years, you know, doing some of the best counterfeiting um, because they needed the hard, hard currency. Um, and, you know, I think it's it may be for the same reason that they're really focusing their efforts now on, um, on financial hacking. Yeah, you know, there's actually a remarkably, uh, uh, to my surprise, I've discovered that there, there's an international convention against uh, uh, state-sponsored counterfeiting uh, that has mostly been observed, or at least been observed enough to be worth keeping. Uh, obviously, the, the North Koreans are in violation of that, and uh, the Nazis violated it uh, uh, back during World War II. Um, but broadly, it's been hard to catch a lot of countries uh, counterfeiting other countries' currency. So there's a there's a sort of international norm at work here that uh, we may see uh, in the context of uh, cyber attacks on banks. Yeah, of course, North Korea, you know, couldn't care less about international norms um, of any sort. Yeah, so let me let me let me uh, now uh, turn the conversation to uh, Michael Daniel. Uh, Michael, uh, welcome. Thank you for for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So, what? What would the Obama administration have done? If you can give me an ex uh, some sense of how you would have or actually did approach the problem of uh, North Korean cyber attacks uh, flouting whatever modest norms we actually have agreed on uh, for cyber attacks. Well, you can clearly see that North Korea is a very problematic actor. Um, I mean, they were behind the attack on Sony Pictures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I never thought that I would uh, be uh, briefing the president on a nation state attack against an entertainment company for, you know, on the basis of a movie. Oh, it's such a crappy movie. Yeah. For, and it was a bad movie, too. Um, and um, and then, you know, sort of their move into uh, in, it, you know, into this area, um, if those, uh, you know, without commenting on the particulars of any given case, if that sort of uh, continues to be the, uh, shown that they're behind this. You know, it shows how problematic it can be when you start to put the resources of a state behind cybercrime. It right. shows still that there's a distinction between even really sophisticated cyber criminal organizations and the scale that a, a nation state can I, I thought this was really interesting. I, I've been saying that the way you get a, um, uh, a sophisticated cyber special forces uh, uh, is the way you win 
gold medals in the Olympics. You pick a sport uh, and then you go around to fifth graders everywhere in your country, find people who seem to have an aptitude, move them to the, uh, the capital, uh, train them for 10 hours a day on one sport. And by the time they're 18, they're pretty damn good, good. at it. Yeah. And I think the, you know, this, the other thing is that, um, again, you know, North Korea is going to want to, uh, is, Michael Vadas was saying, you know, they, they need cash and they need it at a scale, again, that is uh, potentially very problematic for the finan- global financial system uh, as a whole, uh, much more than any cyber criminal organization yes. would, ever, would ever go after. So in my mind, that's kind of the two uh, sort of big things from that particular story. I think, again, we would have, you know, in the Obama administration, you would have put this into the larger geopolitical context with North Korea. Um, you know, part of the challenge uh, with is, is finding something they need. need. <laughs> right. I mean, they're already so isolated. They're already under so many sanctions. Um, it's very difficult to uh, to to find tools on them. So in that case, I think you would actually have to work diplomatically, not necessarily directly against North Korea, but um, they have very little capacity to actually carry this out from North Korea directly. Right. So that means they have to be conducting these operations from third countries like China, Malaysia, Indonesia. There were That's a couple of hotels in, in, in northern China that were notorious yes. for having right. uh, all these uh, 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 cyber attackers from North Korea. Uh, and uh, so let me ask this question. Uh, um, suppose I come in from the national security, from the DOD, and I say, I've got a solution for uh, um, shaking the North Koreans uh, and deterring them from doing this. I think we ought to shut off the power in down in the downtown area that serves the uh, uh, the, the hotels uh, that uh, are being used for these attacks. Uh, it'll stop the attacks for a while, and it will send a message to the Chinese that if they let people operate from their shores, uh, we're going to pursue their attackers uh, into uh, China. So uh, I can imagine lots of people start, starting to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, squirm in their seats. Uh, what is what is the reaction to something like that in the uh, last administration? Well, I think that the again, I always put this anything, any action that you're taking, either in through cyberspace to ch- achieve an effect or to cause uh, an adversary's uh, behavior to change, has to be put uh, in a much broader context than just the cyber uh, piece that you're looking at. Um, and so in that case, you would want to put that into the broader um, geopolitical uh, context that of our relationship both with North Korea and with China. Um, and you would also, in my view, you would want to stack that up against the other tools that might be available to uh, to achieve that uh, to achieve that goal. Um, so, you know, I think the, the first question would be, have you looked at some other less escalatory, less confrontational tools so First. let me let me let me get off you while I'm you know uh, playing with my ideas for uh, responding to the Sony attack. Uh, I always thought that they should have um, put thumb drives, uh, put the movie on a th- on, on a million thumb drives, attach the thumb drives to little helium balloons, and launch them into North Korea. I, I, that idea must have come up. I, I, in fact, I think some private sector or South Korean did it. Uh, um, it, it What's the reason not to do that? Well, I think the question is always one of balance and, and escalation risk. And right. what are you what are you willing to what are you willing to risk? Um, 
how much um, you know how much blowback do you think um, you will take uh, for actions? You know, it's certainly undeniably true that um, in many ways the United States lives in a digital glass house. Um, and um, if they want to send bad movies in uh, uh, in balloons yeah. over the United States, we can probably handle it. That we could, but the question is, you know, do they choose to do escalation in other in other areas? I, you know, I'm not saying that. You know, I personally wouldn't have, you know, uh, been behind uh, more aggressive efforts to to push back. But the but your reasoning always has to be embedded in a much broader uh, in a much broader context. Yeah. I, I, I understand that, but I, it seems to me that if you're always saying we have to be cautious about blowback, you're basically just retreating. Uh, every time somebody does something uh, to you, you say, oh, well, the reaction could be bad, so I won't respond, which is just an invitation for them to do it again. Although what I would say is I think you ha- always have to be mindful of that. It does not mean that you always allow that to paralyze you right. from uh, indecision. You just have to be aware that um, we don't necessarily – uh, we're not invulnerable in this space, oh, absolutely and, that, and that, um, and that if we take an action, there could be a uh, a reaction that you have to be prepared for. Um, I, in some ways, I would actually argue it could it could actually strengthen uh, a step um, in the sense that um, it, it could strengthen the signal that you send if you're if it is well known that you're actually willing to pay the price and you're taking the action yeah. anyway. It could send the signal that this is actually so important to us. We know that we're taking that risk, and therefore you should actually understand. This is how much we care about it. This went through interagency. The Commerce Department and the Treasury Department said, yeah, go for it. Uh, and that means that, you know, you're going to – the onus is going to be on the other side to decide to respond, and we're ready for that. Yeah, that, that, uh, very good. Um, uh, so the – the administration, the White House has named Tom Bossert to, uh, to Lisa Monaco's job, uh, uh, and it's named Rob Joyce to yours. Um, any thoughts about what that tells us about where cyber policy is likely to go? Well, I think it tells us a couple of things. One is that um, both uh, both Tom and, and Rob are very uh, even-keeled uh, individuals. They're very uh, measured and thoughtful in their, uh, their approach uh, to the issue. Um, they have, uh, um, you know, Tom brings a wealth of experience across a number of different areas, and you know, Rob has just a, a tremendous experience up at NSA. I worked with him, uh, you know, frequently for for many many years, dating well back even before my time as uh, the cybersecurity coordinator. Um, so I think it actually signals that they're taking the issue pretty seriously, mm-hmm. um, but also that they're taking a pretty um, I would say moderate, middle of the road, uh, very measured uh, approach to cybersecurity. Um, that um, you know, very solidly, what I would consider Republican, but not you know, pretty mainstream uh, approaches to things. Yeah, I mean, I, I have have said that uh, in Democratic administrations, uh, um, the deregulatory impulse and the importance of national security are kind of welterweight fights. And in Republican circles, they're heavyweight fights, uh, but it's the same fight, and they're more or less matched either way. Yeah. Um, so we've seen a draft ex- – we've seen a couple of draft executive orders, uh, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, it's pretty clear from the delay that there's going to be more drafting, uh, but there wasn't that much change, uh, at least in temper. 
uh, a lot of uh, uh, plans for 60 and 90 and 180 day plans, uh, which is pretty much what the Obama administration did when it came yep, in. Absolutely. Uh, anything in those executive orders that uh, you think is kind of a notable departure or interesting from the point of view of where future policy is going to go? Well, I actually think it shows a uh, a fair amount of continuity mm-hmm. uh, from the the policy approaches that were particularly starting to emerge um, at the end of the Obama administration. I think, in particular, sort of the point towards um, going towards shared services for yes. uh, federal agencies is particularly important. Right. And and that's it's pretty clear that that was in the Donilon report, which yes. was uh, the the. Uh, kind of the legacy from the Obama administration, the, the gift to what they suspected was going to be uh, uh, the uh, uh, Clinton administration, but which turned out to be uh, the Trump administration. So they, they've begun to focus on shared services in all of those uh, uh, approaches. And I think that's really important because I think the idea that you're going to be able to get every single federal civilian agency to be really good at its cybersecurity um, is yeah, just nuts. It's right? just crazy. As it's just OPM. right. It's just never going to happen. At the same time, you don't want to remove accountability for protecting their information right. entirely from an agency's leadership. And so, I think the right way to strike that balance is to figure out what pieces of the IT operations and the cybersecurity operations can be uh, assigned to other agencies. And you focus an individual agency on the pieces that they actually are most interested in and have the most control over. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I think that um, that's that's behind this drive, and I think it's the I think it's the right one uh, to do because I think it's the only way you'll ever get the civilian agency's cybersecurity posture, you know, measurably improved. So the idea is it's it's a sort of um, boil the frog transfer centralization of responsive of of. of control of uh, IT infrastructure, that you you can no longer expect everybody's going to have their own IT infrastructure. Uh, Different um, parts of the government are going to specialize in different things, but we're going to end up with one or two or three federal clouds, not um, not 300. That's right. And I think that actually is the way that if you look at the way the private sector has been going, that's, you know, the same uh, sort of direction there. But, you know, I, I would argue that you know, you want your departments and agencies focused on the application layer that they care about that's mission-specific to them yep. and uh, that is mission-enabling to uh, for them. And you don't want them worrying about, you know, uh, the transport layer and, um, you know, how the, how the ones and zeros get from point A to point B and what's, you know, what appliances are in the stack and all of those kinds of things are irrelevant to the – you know, leadership of the agriculture department or NOAA or, you know, pick your, your federal agency there. But don't you, I, I mean, here's, here's the problem I see with that is that if you're going to do incident management, SIEM uh, uh, kind of event uh, management, uh, you have to have people watching that who are deep into the operation of your organization. And yet that's a, that's a pretty centralized uh, function. Uh, you don't want to have 300 different SIEM uh, systems. So uh, isn't that going to force whoever has that role, which I assume is DHS, uh, into the position of actually asking uh, um, 
what's you know why are people doing particular kinds of activities online from uh, the interior department uh, uh, and that of course I would have thought worries the interior department they don't want DHS looking over their shoulder and certainly FBI doesn't want uh, the secret service looking over their shoulder yeah and I think that those are the kinds of issues that you have to work out in terms of so for example one of the programs that I think uh, is highly successful that needs to be continued is the continuous diagnostics and mitigation right. program that uh, DHS had put together, which gives individual agencies that insight uh, into their networks. It also gives DHS some of that that insight. And I think you have to work out the protocols um, between those agencies for what data, who's going to who's going to access what kind of data. So what right. I what I used to see, I mean, when I was at DHS. Uh, but more generally, is um, there was an incredible turf fight over that, where the lawyers will all be deployed to say, well, we have special security and privacy requirements that mean we can't let you look over our shoulder, so we're just not going to share. We're going to go back and run our own shop the way we want to run our shop. Uh, and you just got that over and over again. The, the HHS would say, oh, HIPAA prevents us from ever giving you this. And certainly I would say that my experience um, and one of my um, sort of frustrations in the in the previous job was how hard it was to overcome uh, a lot of that. I assume, fair, I assume OPM kind of blew, blew that uh, logjam open. It, it certainly did, um, and certainly it became um, – it certainly became a lot more apparent that um, there were, you know, secretaries and deputy secretaries uh, who began asking questions of their general counsel's office of, like, so wait a minute, so you're telling me, you know, we're not letting DHS look at this data, but the Russians or the Chinese or whoever can get access to it? Uh, wait a minute, that seems a little bit. Uh, I don't want to have to testify to that, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill. So let's let's talk about how we can get to yes here. Um, I do think Congress actually helped by passing some of the legislation that they did that right. clearly gave DHS some authorities in this area. I suspect we'll have to continue down that road. I think it does put an, an – um, I, I do think um, that in many cases there – you know, there are le- – the, the agencies are legitimately concerned about who has access to the data. Yes. And putting good controls, good privacy controls on that, putting good use controls on what – um, DHS can do with any data that they do, either you know, collect deliberately or inadvertently come, uh, you know, incidentally come across is really important uh, in that. But I think we have to do that because, again, coming back to expecting all of these agencies to be really good at their cybersecurity is just it's it's crazy. It's not going to. And it doesn't mean that there aren't really. I mean, I worked with really really good CISOs, really really good top notch people at almost all of the agencies, but. It was very difficult for them to, you know, um, to really do this job well across the entire spectrum. And so we actually ought to make their jobs, you know, CIO and CISO at all these different federal agencies, we ought to make their jobs easier by taking some of the burden off of them. So that, that, that argues for giving DHS a very big role in uh, uh, cybersecurity for the civilian sector, and presumably NSA will keep its uh, uh, role for DOD and military and intelligence uh, systems. Uh, um, it, do you think that works in the long run, that DHS can handle that kind of responsibility? I think I think it has to. Um, okay. I, I, well, that, I think, and that's sort of what we do with Einstein. Right. We said uh, about Einstein, uh, which was a an, an intrusion prevention system, uh, uh, a, it has to work 
We're going to give you the money. You better make it work. And DHS more or less did, right? And I think that's largely right. And I think that, you know, my own view is that DHS continues to improve in its capacity. Um, And would would I wish that it could move faster? Uh, Yes. But I think it continues to improve. Uh, I continue to be impressed with the the quality of the people that they get uh, to work for DHS. Um, And I think that um, and I think it's the right division of uh, I think it's the right division of labor uh, in there. Um, I think that you know the thing that I say over and over and over again in this area is that um, the federal government has to learn how to bring all of its capabilities to bear from multiple different departments and mm-hmm. agencies. And um, the 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 game for the 21st century here is figuring out how to have these collective um, you know across these agency silos. Um, and I, I am not a believer that you fix that by trying to rearrange the deck chairs, that instead you work out how you can actually get these agencies to, uh, to work well together. So are you at all um, troubled by the fact that every other English-speaking country that has gone through this process and has uh, developed a single cent- a central focus on cybersecurity – chose their NSA equivalent. Uh, only we have decided that NSA is going to only handle the military and intelligence side of cybersecurity and that some other agency will have the rest of the government's responsibilities. Yeah, I'm actually not. I mean, I think that the – I mean, for one thing, we just operated a scale that is different mm-hmm. than all the other uh, countries. And I, you know, I am uh, – very, you know, appreciative of the the partnership that I certainly had with my counterparts in the different governments. But I think that it's difficult to, you know, um, when you realize that you can get um, many of these agencies um, in these governments actually physically the entire a- multiples of these agencies physically co-located in single buildings. Right. Um, you realize the the difference in the scale that that we operate on. Um, and I think that the that is just an uh, a unappreciated uh, driver behind how, why we have to go about it in a um, in a slightly different uh, in a slightly different manner. So, uh, talking about uh, how you've run your uh, uh, shop, uh, what what do you most regret? you didn't get done or that you got done and you don't like the way it ended up being done. I mean, we, we all have regrets. Sure. Uh, and, and I'm, ha- I've, I've actually, uh, laid all of my, uh, my mistakes out in a book on this topic. Uh, so, um, uh, feel free to say what you think you just got wrong. Well, I think that, um, I, I will say that I'm very proud of the, the track record that, that we assembled. Um, I, I think I would sort of highlight, Really, it, it comes down to um, it comes down to speed, um, and the thing that I am uh, you know that was the most frustrating was um, not being able to move faster mm-hmm. uh, in certain areas. You know that it took us you know until uh, you know the end of 2015 to get major legislation uh, right. across the finish line yep. uh, in Congress. Um, and required just vast amounts of, um, uh, uh, you know, time and political capital. This to, was the Cybersecurity Act, act. Uh, uh, basically authorizing to, information to sharing share. and setting some standards for it. Right. And, you know, the, uh, I, I'm very proud of the fact that we got that. Right. I'm 
frustrated that it took us as long as it did. Um, you know, so I think in sort of I could go through multiple areas like that. And in, in almost all of them, it was that we just didn't um, that it took us longer than we anticipated to get things done. And so we left stuff not as far down the, the path as as I would like. So, for example, you know, in federal cybersecurity that we didn't make more progress in setting up shared services mm-hmm. and um, that, you know, um, internationally um, that we were still sort of working towards how do you actually take anything approaching coordinated action in cyberspace, let alone which you could almost think of as, as collective action um, in cyberspace. Um, and that, you know, we weren't, we weren't able to, you know, move the ball further uh, on those. Um, I think those are the, it mostly just comes down to, are we actually moving fast enough to adapt to the threat as it um, continues to, uh, so to on, change? So on, on the other hand, on, on, on a, Good note. It seems to me that you did manage to um, uh, put down a pretty hefty marker with the uh, PLA uh, that had a uh, an impact I didn't expect, uh, and I'm confident that there was an enormous debate over whether to allow those indictments to go forward. Uh, I, and you managed to bring them forward, and instead of having the bad reaction that everybody worried about, you got um, a very good reaction. Well, I think that the I'm actually very proud of the the, the China uh, agreement that mm-hmm. uh, we forged. Um, I will. Uh, never forget spending all night in the Wardman Park Hotel, uh, you know, hammering that out with um, uh, being part of the team that hammered that out with the Chinese. That was a pretty amazing uh, yeah. experience. But I think that part of what I would draw from that is that that was the culmination of years of diplomatic work right. uh, as well. That, in other words, uh, even with the indictments, right, they weren't the first thing out of the box. Right. That they came after a long set of engagements of us saying to the Chinese government repeatedly, consistently, you are engaging in behavior that we find unacceptable. And if you keep doing it, we're going to you know, steadily ratchet up the, the, the pressure. And so I think that it, it worked because it was part of a larger continuum of efforts um, across the board. Um, and that I think I am very, you know, I'm very proud of that we were able to, to marshal that. Yeah, I, uh, and, and, and from what I gather, one of the key things here was uh, um, the internal disgrace of the PLA uh, to have the kinds of details, you know, the uh, the blog postings and the girlfriend's pictures uh, about what was supposed to be some super secret operation suddenly across every newspaper in the world. Uh, um, and uh, their ability to hold that turf to continue to carry out those attacks sort of just uh, melted away in the face of what I, I have to call uh, a certain amount of ridicule. Well, and I also think that the you know from the Chinese government's perspective, they also began to realize that you know the United States consistently was raising this. Right. It was causing friction in that way. It was causing friction in other areas. And a lot of it was crony cyber espionage. It was it was stuff right. for their buddy who right. wanted something done and was willing to pay for it. Uh, and so the the Chinese government wasn't actually getting the benefit of all this pain. Right. And I think that was eventually they began to do a, you know, from their perspective, they did started to do a cost benefit calculus and came to the conclusion that it wasn't, 
it wasn't worth it for them. Yeah. The, the benefits were not worth the the friction that they were having to uh, to accept, and so they they modified behavior. But that's exactly what we want to try to. That's exactly what we want to try to try to do. So um, let me suggest that the vulnerability, vulnerability equities pro, uh, process is one of the um, parts of your tenure that I hope survives. I, I'm not at all. And I, and I, no, I, 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 my sense is it's – first, it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, there was already a vulnerabilities equities process. And most of the things that, uh, at least according to the studies I've seen, uh, that the uh, intelligence community relies on are – not likely to be fixed, uh, uh, and if you pointed to them, there would be a dozen others that you're not pointing to that you would then turn to to cre- recreate those capabilities. That there are very few magic vulnerabilities that, uh, if they were fixed, they would give us security in a particular company's products. Um, and so this this exercise, I think, has been ginned up by the, by the kind of privacy left because um, they they don't care about. Uh, the equities of the National Security Agency, and I'm just not sure it really is improving security. I think I might disagree with you on that score. I th- I actually think that the the I thought you were going to say that you wanted it. Continue. No, no. Uh, I I actually do. Um, I think that it could be it could be streamlined. It could be improved. I think actually getting all of the agencies uh, to come on board with um, their um, their equities. Um, is really important. Well, I certainly, think- I, what we've seen is, of course, NSA had to because they were on their back foot. Uh, uh, CIA did a much less enthusiastic job, and FBI, as far as I can tell, did no job at all. Well, I think that all of the agencies were beginning to participate, um, and I think the, I think the, there's a couple of things, Stuart, that I would point out. One is that. Um, there is a popular perception that the numbers of these things are really huge. Right. Um, and the truth is they're just not. Right. Right. Um, the second thing is that um, the – in my view, um, the the reason for having a process like this is because the uh, – I believe as a government, you have uh, two um, – all governments, not just the U.S. Mm-hmm. government, has two things that are in tension, which is that you want to protect your society, you want to protect your critical infrastructure, and you want to protect your, your citizens. And that demands that you are – if you as a government discover vulnerabilities in software, you should be telling vendors about them. On the other hand, you also have legitimate national security um, activities that you need to carry out to do intelligence collection, to do war fighting, to do law enforcement operations. And so that means that you're going to need to have the ability to do exploitation. Um, and anybody who doesn't recognize that is not is, – is, is being naive. And so therefore, I would prefer for there to be a interagency process where that can be hammered out um, with some oversight rather than just leaving that to the devices of the intelligence community. Um, but I but I would agree that from if that those that criticize the U.S. government for t- retaining some vulnerabilities are being are, are being in fact naive right. uh, in that score and um, it it is necessary for our national security and our public safety to to do that. Yeah, and there ought to be room for the argument that says, which I don't think I've heard in the process. Uh, uh, we found a vul- we're using a vulner uh, a uh, buffer overflow uh, uh, in this company's uh, products. Uh, if we could tell them about it, but there's 
112 other buffer overflows that they haven't fixed that they've known about or could have found. Uh, so going in and crippling our capabilities will reduce the uh, buffer overflow problem by less than 1%. We shouldn't have to do that. And I think that that's part of, I would argue, that should be part of the discussion. Uh, and and should be and can be part of the part of the discussion about how you weigh the the pros and cons about d- doing a uh, doing a disclosure, um, and uh, you know I've actually been very um, I've been very public about my position uh, on this, um, much to the annoyance of of some, <laughs> uh, but I I am a firm I'm a firm believer in it. So. Um, before we finish, I want to give you a chance to tell us what the Cyber Threat Alliance does and why, uh, given all the choices of a future career that you had in front of you, uh, you chose to uh, to join them. Well, thank you. I think that the, the bottom line for me was it was a place that I could go that was both uh, allow me to draw on the skills that I had gained uh, and the knowledge that I had gained particularly over the last four and a half years, but also would challenge me in some new ways because mm-hmm. it's a, a lot like a startup. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm employee number one and uh, the only one uh, that's too, on, too bad that uh, 501c6s don't, don't issue stock. Uh, yeah. uh, you would, you, otherwise, you could have a uh, right. controlling share. share. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, that's, uh, you know, so that's uh, part of the attraction for me. The other the, the other part of the attraction is that I believe that it can really have an, an impact across the ecosystem. And the reason I say that is because the, the Cyber Threat Alliance is, is really an, it's an information sharing and analysis organization mm-hmm. um, that is designed to enable the cybersecurity firms to share cyber threat intelligence. Um, but there's a couple of things that make it a little bit different. Uh, one is that all of our members are required to contribute uh, and uh, in order to stay a member in good, in good standing. Um, the other thing is that um, we actually score the cyber threat intelligence that's provided to us. So simply providing a IP address is, uh, without any contextual information is really not worth very much. Ah, okay. Um, Who scores it? So there is an algorithm that is set okay. up. Uh, that is So it's machine scored according to a rule set that all the members have insight into okay. uh-huh. and can understand exactly how their uh, packages will be scored uh, before they arrive. Um, and we give more points for context and more points for uh, speed, more points for including mm-hmm. tactics, techniques, and procedures. Um, ultimately, uh, my view is that this should uh, enable the all of the cybersecurity vendors that are part of the alliance to uh, do a better job of protecting the ecosystem because their defensive products will be based on uh, up-to-date much, information. Up, and yep. a much broader pool of information than they themselves alone could get. So let me ask you the, uh, the question. You spent five years writing the uh, and fighting for the Cybersecurity Act, which exists for one reason only, which is to let uh, government agencies participate in private sector sharing because uh, uh, there was no need to pass the act if, if, if it were not for the legal restrictions on uh, sharing with the government. So um, I noticed that there are no government uh, members of the uh, Threat Alliance. Uh, um, do you think that there will be? Uh, are you hoping that there are going to be some? Yes, I'm. I think that there will be uh, down the road, and I'm. I'm very much want that to uh, be the case. Um, I think in figuring out how to get the governments, uh, and I say governments because it's going to have to be more than just the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, government. Uh, figuring out how to get um, governments 
plural, uh, plugged in in the right way that, um, you know, respects um, the rules and privacy and other things that, that folks want is uh, that's going to be important. But um, but yes, I think it's absolutely critical that um, governments in some fashion are a member down the road. Well, great. Thank you. Is there anything else that uh, uh, you want to tell our listeners? Uh, 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 we always give you a chance to say, I'm giving a speech tomorrow or <laughs> next week uh, or we're p- putting out a white paper. Well, I think that you know one of the things you should uh, also look t- uh, for in the future from CTA is us to pu- start publishing some playbooks of adversary uh, activities where we try to provide some analysis, not just of their malware, uh, but of the broader set of business practices they use to carry out their activities from uh, from beginning to end, um, and that ultimately um, moving just beyond disrupting their their particular uh, activities at a given tactical time, but to strategically disrupt the adversaries from a business process uh, standpoint, which will make it much more difficult uh, for them to uh, recover from, and it'll be a much bigger disruption to them. So. Starting the uh, starting this summer, uh, look out for some some playbooks from the CTA. I am I'm enthusiastic about it. As you know, I'm a big enthusiast for attribution and retribution, and uh, this will make uh, both of those more uh, more likely. So, uh, Michael Daniel, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Uh, also, thanks to Michael Vadis and Stephanie Roy. As always, the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback, send questions and suggestions, and candidates for uh, uh, speakers to Cyber Law podcast at steptoe.com. We're always happy to get uh, good reviews as well on iTunes and other podcast aggregators. This has been episode 156 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please do send us your candidates. We will give you a valued uh, uh, Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast mug, which I'm going to award to Michael Daniel before he departs. So don't leave without it. Uh, it's uh, it, it's enormously, uh, it's really, there's no expressing its value. Um, next week, I think we've got Josh Corman, the director of Cyber Statecraft Init- Initiative at the um, Atlantic Council, and Justine Bone, who's the CEO and director of MedSec. They'll be talking about medical device security and what to do about how bad it is. Uh, that's me editorializing, but I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me. Uh, and uh, for for those of you who are listening, uh, if you uh, can try to buy tickets, uh, actually reserve tickets, I don't think they cost anything, uh, for our live uh, extravaganza, the uh, third annual Triple Entente Beer Summit, where we do the podcast um, uh, well lubricated in uh, a bar uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, the tickets for that are on sale on at the uh, Lawfare site, if I understand it uh, right. So go to lawfare.org and look for that. Uh, they're going very fast. Uh, uh, it's going to take place between 6 and 8 at the Old Engine 12 restaurant on 1626 North Capitol uh, on April 6th. We hope you'll join us for uh, in person or just on the podcast uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.